You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori, and I'm also the director of creative and marketing here. Nori is a carbon removal marketplace based in Seattle, Washington. Today, I am joined by my co-host, Siobhan Montoya-Lavender. Hey, Siobhan. Hey, Ross. How you doing? I'm doing well. You have an uh, an old old friend of yours from across the world. It seems we had, we're sk- this is the late show, as we were joking about earlier, which means it'll be more blue than average. I'm gonna try not to do my usual Vanna White for our guests. Oh. I'm feeling very mellow, perhaps because it's dark out. We are here with Leah Nicholson, who has a really interesting and geographically diverse climate career. And she is joining us today all the way from Singapore. So we're having a phone call here with the future. How how did Tuesday turn out, Leah? Tuesday was great. I'm just drinking my coffee. So I've got energy for all of us to get the day going. I didn't know you were going to start with time travel jokes. Shiv. Some, <laughs> that's some weak stuff right there. You better, you better get your game up. You're very good one. Okay, okay. I should have brought a glass of wine to this thing. All right. So Leah um, has, again, had a really interesting career, everything from representing small island nations at COP26 to doing climate work in West Africa. As we just mentioned, she's in Singapore. Um, So Leah, I don't often like to start with kind of the, you know, what's your backstory generic thing, but I think with you, it's pretty relevant. And I'm, I think our audience would be curious. How did you get into climate work? Why have you lived all over the world? For me, it's been a very personal journey coming from Antigua and Barbuda in the Caribbean. And uh, one of my early memories is a category five hurricane, which definitely leaves a mark if anyone's lived through one of them. It was a hurricane that kind of hit the island and then reformed. So it was about 24 to 30 hours long that we were kind of down. I remember my dad and uncle holding the doors closed. So that was, um, you know, a lesson uh, and Also just living in a small island, catching fish, living that very idyllic life, you're very close to nature and the environment. So environment has always been my passion. And that's what I kind of pursued and followed, worked in local nonprofits in Antigua and Barbuda, eventually studied at um, the Yale School of Environment for my master's and got into climate change there from an academic perspective. And it really resonated and it was uh, really amazing to take that and go back to the government and work with the Department of Environment on um, some of these both local and global issues. Yeah. Now you're head of sustainability at Terrascope. And this episode for our listeners, you know, we talk a lot about carbon removal. Today's show is going to be on the more decarb side. And then we're also going to be talking about this kind of niche genre of carbon removal, which is carbon removal within the value chain or insetting. And Leah's kind of a an expert in this area. And I think for our listeners who have heard of carbon removal, maybe, maybe know something about carbon markets, how is insetting different? And can you explain to us what it is? Yeah, absolutely. And this conversation, I think, is very emblematic of where the space is at, where For me, I've always been in the inventory accounting approach. um, And now you're in the carbon market space uh, and project accounting and bringing the two together is what we're going to see a lot more um, of in the future because there's been some major shifts, which which I'll talk about. So um, I think the lay of the land is we've got the project accounting. For the inventory, you've got different ways of um, breaking up those emissions from the national government. Uh, level. So each government should be able to measure their own emissions, add those up, and we get the total emissions in the world. From There's a city accounting standard, uh, which I did in West Africa at an urban level to help mayors figure out what are their city level emissions and reducing. Um, and then we go into the corporate uh, accounting, and that's where you hear scope one, two, and three. So scope one, two, and three only exist in the corporate space. The point of corporate accounting is not to add all up company's emissions up actually. Um, It's really to look at where does that company have influence on those emissions. So for its purchased goods and services in scope three, that will sit in the value chain. 
but that company can influence it, which is why that's the point of accounting is, is really looking at that influence piece for corporate. And then the last one we have is product level. So you're kind of taking a bottle of milk and looking at what are the life cycle emissions at that product level. So the lay of the land is uh, there are many different accounting standards and you use the sta standard that you need for the purpose that you're looking at. Um, in the corporate accounting one, which is what I'll focus most, mostly on this session. Um, so when it comes to, there's been historically a, a bigger focus both on measuring and setting targets for scope one and two. Scope one being the uh, kind of emissions from the assets that the company owns and scope two from the and emissions from the electricity that the company purchases. In the last couple of years, we've seen a huge shift to scope three um, and that is the supply chain emissions. So a, nor a typical company, 85% of the company's emissions will sit in its value chain. So if you're only looking at scope one and two, it's really the tip of the iceberg from an emissions perspective. Um, and actually just focusing on that, you can uh, outsource and have emissions reduction, but that's not true. That's paper decarbonization, not true decarbonization. Um, so with this focus on the, the value chain, um, there's this new, uh, guidance from the greenhouse gas protocol, which is called land sector and removals. And for the first time, there's a real um, focus on removals within the value chain of the company. And this is where we're seeing the insetting versus offsetting discussion now taking place. So let's take, um, for example, a, a food and a beverage company that's a processor and they package um, uh, orange juice. So the emissions for their direct off operations would be, you know, just the packaging and, and the processing, but the scope three emissions will be growing those oranges on the farm. Um, and what this, uh, this standard now says, which is in draft form, so the final version will be released next year. Um, and it's several hundred pages of kind of accounting guidance for this, sec this sector. Um, what this guidance says is if that company um, practices more sustainable land management on that orange farm, on that grove, then and it can count removals, then it can net those, it can account for those removals. So it's actually removals against its emission sources. That's getting a little bit into the target setting standard, with, which is the science-based targets initiative. Um, so uh, the, the difference how that is playing out is um, the removals within the value chain uh, are being netted against the kind of sources of emissions for that, that flag sector. Um, where we're seeing, how does this kind of dovetail with the um, project level accounting is the greenhouse gas says if um, a, that company has sold those offsets or has looked at uh, projects around um, removals within the value chain, then it may or may not show up in that company's emissions because of this difference in, for example, avoided emissions. So that's kind of the high level um, insetting versus offsetting. And, uh, but, but we can go deep into that if you, if you want to. I know you guys are, yeah, in the, in the different time zone, but let me know what you have appetite for. What do you do when, I mean, the, the old line that always gets used here is that everyone's scope three emissions is someone else's scope one. Um, is there a good reason not to simplify and just have everyone do their own scope one and not worry about really hard to calculate, really diverse value chain questions? Yes. So first of all, I think the scope three is becoming much less hard. And for me, that was the, the point of joining um, Terrascope, which is a carbon accounting SaaS platform using AI machine learning to get much better estimates. So um, even if everyone does the scope one accounting, how can I, as a company, maybe I'm further downstream, I'm a bigger player. How can I incentivize my suppliers to decarbonize? So they may have a scope one um, emissions measurement, but the scope three is really about leverage and influence. It's about decarbonizing across the value chain. Um, so uh, when you kind of combine that with the target setting piece, um, I think, yeah, a lot of the companies will have their scope three targets. And then this is where the kind of contractual uh, obligations come. So I'm going to pick suppliers that 
have targets themselves that do measure. So they all of the suppliers should be measuring emissions. That's becoming much more universal. Um, but then it's, yeah, it's leverage. It's like understanding that 50% of my emissions reductions will come from these 10 key suppliers that I have and who can afford to take those actions, who can afford to take those risks and how do we kind of structure those relationships that um, look at uh, decarbonization across the value chain. I think that so it's about influence and leverage in short for me. I think that companies like Terrascope and is always just a reminder that there's so many skill sets that are needed for climate change, addressing climate change. And I think a lot of people don't think accounting, that's really like a climate skill set, but it's actually this really critical skill set that I think kind of gets brushed over because it's not super sexy. Um, it's accounting? not- What? <laughs> it's <ahead>. not- <laughs> Sorry. And so I think, yeah, I think that these idea, this idea of tracking and accounting for emissions is really, really crucial. And yet I think a lot of the, the flash and pizzazz goes to the new technologies or, or even marketplaces. And, and I'm just curious, like what, what made you think, okay, this is where I'm going to spend my time. I'm going to dig into like different scopes of carbon accounting. How do, how are you drawn to that? It's a good question. I also want to seed the idea for next year's Halloween to have a bunch of sexy carbon accountants <laughs> for costumes. <laughs> awesome. Um, with methane and nitrous oxide, all of you. All right. So um, the reason why carbon accounting is so critical is coming from the accountability space and transparency. And for me, I've seen that play out at a multilateral level, which is we have the Paris Agreement, which every government sets their own targets and reports progress against those targets. And the way to build trust in that bottom-up, very individual-led approach is by having strong uh, accounting to so that I trust your numbers. There's actually in the UN, there is a way that government experts go to other governments and inspect their greenhouse gas emissions inventory. It's part of like this peer review process. So uh, the rubber hits the road when it comes to tracking progress against targets, seeing the historical trends, setting targets and, and really measuring those in a credible way. The consequence of not having good accounting and transparency is that you can make very ambitious claims that aren't backed up and then you know as public opinion moves on and then you circle back and then there's greenwashing accusations i think nobody wants to be caught out in the in this way um and so it's really about putting in strong um accounting and tracking systems and even the standards themselves i mean the greenhouse gas protocol was developed in the early 90s and is going through a major overhaul and update so they've done a big consultation on what should we change in the scope three accounting standard um, and, and across scope one, two, and three. And so we're seeing um, in today's world with new technology, with new techniques, with new expectations that we should trust these numbers, uh, we need to update our standards. So it's really an evolving um, space. And the way we will get to net zero is through accounting and transparency and ultimately accountability. Do you think the greenhouse gas uh, protocol is here to stay? Because I've also seen challenges arise recently, like the E-Liability Institute. I think they're doing really interesting work. I think they're trying to eliminate multiple scopes and try and simplify things down and use basically best practices from financial accounting and skip over a lot of the developed by sustainability experts who are not accountants, that they're doing things that accountants would shy away from, things like additionality that are frankly uh, non-objective measurements of quality that are, have a qualitative element to it. Accountants don't love that. And trying to find ways that are a bit more standardizable and trustworthy and also less difficult for outsiders to access. Or maybe not, maybe it just requires a different type of skill set to do so. I don't know, are you tracking developments like that or do you think that the GHG protocol is still gonna remain dominant? They're walking a difficult line of making guidance that is acceptable. It's global. So there will be inherent limitations and scope for interpreting based on the sectors you're in. Where we're seeing evolution, uh, and, and yeah, greenhouse gas protocol is not the only standard, right? We have the ISO standard. There's a new 
uh, World Business Council um, standard for product level accounting that looks at exchanging data across the value chain in a more standardized way. Um, what What's interesting is much more sector specific guidance. So the landscape feels as though it's really specializing in a way that um, is new, whereas uh, so we're seeing, you know, the chemicals industry has a, a guidance on carbon accounting for that space. And um, this land sector and removals guidance, very applicable to the food and agricultural space. So there's um, a role for sector specific um, additions. And the but but the greenhouse gas has been reinforced in a big way through the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, which um, has put out this kind of global baseline for climate disclosures that now national Singapore has said they're, they'll pledge to adopt it, Japan, UK, um, Australia. So many governments will take ISSB and put it in an ISSB's accounting standard is the greenhouse gas protocol 2004 version. If they if greenhouse gas protocol updates which they plan to then ISSB will review. So there's this really interesting dialogue between the core, the bodies that are kind of at the core of setting these standards and tracking it. Um, I expect us to see more uh, kind of industry specific uh, like guidance and specialization to help get more accuracy uh, in, in, those, in those areas. You know, standardization, super critical and it's, it's kind of both disheartening and relieving to hear that there's this much kind of unsettled or undefined standards within decarb as well, because we certainly have that over on the carbon removal side of trying to figure out how do you compare these heterogeneous credits and what are the standards and how should the MRV, the monitoring, reporting and verification be conducted in a standard way. So I think the whole kind of climate industry in general is struggling with the standards. You've negotiated a COP. So you're about to go to the, the next COP, I believe. Um, how do you how do you think people are thinking about standards from these more like big nations negotiating standpoint? Like, is that is everyone looking for the standards? Is everyone kind of trying to avoid standards? What would you say is kind of the general opinion? Hmm. The there's definitely a big divergence about what countries are are, are looking for what. So for example, the EU has is doing a lot more transboundary, recognizing that every government um, kind of can set their own targets and it has that sovereignty to adopt and set and determine what is applicable in their boundary. But at the same time, climate change being a global movement and uh, a global problem that needs a global solution. So the EU is taking an interesting transboundary approach with the carbon border adjustment tax they have new uh, kind of reporting requirements for companies that are going to be international, but with uh, a certain amount of revenue in the EU. So I think the EU is really looking at this landscape and saying, how do we influence um, globally through our own domestic regulations? But the multilateral process is handicapped by um, there can be like voluntary uh, recommendations like the task force on climate related financial disclosures, TCFD, uh, but it's up to governments what they do. And it's kind of a peer pressure. Okay, there's this new standard, we're gonna adopt it, are you? We go to the multilateral bodies and do the rounds, um, cough gore for you know, this and, uh, and uh, w, uh, WTO for others. Um, but it's really, it's gonna be a patchy landscape for a long time. Um, so you see, even within these, all these different international standards, there's uh, domestic variation. But that being said, it's interesting in the corporate space where um, where governments make the, make the pledges and then figure out how will they now that get their companies to uh, fall in line and to set targets and to measure emissions. So really replicate that process that governments have been doing for a couple of decades. Um, and that is where for me, the scope three really kicks in because scope three is transboundary as well. So having a company registered in one jurisdiction that must measure scope three means that that company's obligation now is to go to its value chain and ask for the emissions and so on further up, up the tier. So for example, in Asia, we have um, some of our clients are 
of measuring emissions because their customers are asking them, not because they're regulated to. Um, so in some ways, the scope three kind of value chain focus is a wings of change that is will per permeate at a, at a global level. Because the big challenge for us is that the industrialized countries are already declining emissions. Emerging markets are increasing emissions. All the, but you know, this is where Asia is where the future of emissions are going to come from, but regulations are lagging um, behind. And so the focus on the value chain and um, action within the value chain feels like a very promising element to have some of that technology transfer and those things that we strive for at a kind of domestic, a, a government level to actually play out in, in practice. Um, and I, I do want to talk a little bit about the where the intersection of the carbon markets and the kind of scope three corporate value chain is coming in with the land sector because um, the type of um, the type of uh, transparency and this the uh, safeguards in place for action within the value chain is actually taking a lot from the carbon market space. So when let's go back to that orange, uh, that kind of orange uh, fruit juice company, right? So on that farm, all the way up the value chain, that company, if, if they want to count those removals, has to have the uh, storage monitoring, it has to be primary data collection, there has to be reversals accounting. So a lot of concepts that were developed through the carbon markets accounting standard are now coming into um, the corporate value chain from an MRV, from a, a kind of primary data and, and other things. What's missing is the additionality, right? So we don't look at what could have been in the corporates, it's just an inventory. It's like, how much emissions are you emitting? And how much are you removing? And that's it. Um, and if you want to count the removals, you must have these five criteria met. Uh, and so it's it's kind of a slice of the carbon markets piece. Um, and that should help us to have much more of a focus on regenerative agriculture, on land-based um, kind of on-farm practices, uh, on some of these uh, goals that the carbon market space is trying is trying to to foster and to do. And um, we now can bring that within the value chain and have another source of hopefully revenue, right? Because most emissions are coming from in the food and ag from on those farms. Um, and so we need, if a downstream company values those emission reductions further up its value chain, then there should be kind of a, a contractual um, chain of action that can help those smallholder farmers or those farmers in general to change their practices to have more regenerative agriculture because it shows up in that value chain. So it's an interesting um, uh, kind of addition to the landscape of how we're going to support finance and incentivize action. Does the standard respect like for like in the sense that it's not the fossil-based emissions coming off of farms that would be negated by regenerative agriculture? You're nodding. Sounds like it would be ish. I feel like it has to. Never, like it, never a straightforward answer. <laughs> yeah. If it doesn't, I think it's at risk of of not being scientifically valid. Yeah. Yes. So the the science based targets initiative has um, the guidance on the target setting piece. So that's the forward looking. It's like, how am I going to plan my uh, my net zero trajectory? And under this, now a company must separate its emissions into two buckets. The first bucket is energy and industry and all, you know, just kind of all non-forest land and agriculture emissions. Um, the, the forest land and agriculture or FLAG, another new acronym for the for the already had so glossary. many, so many acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we'll do, so in the, so yes, your, the answer is yes, the company must separate out its emissions. For um, that, there's a challenge around, in practice, separating out farm, like machinery equipment that's kind of managing the land mm -hmm. from the, the sources of land-based emissions, like deforestation. Um, so there's a little bit of guidance, but the once the emission, once that product or that value chain leaves the farm gate, so that's really the core boundary is to farm gates. Um, any emissions before the farm gate can be essentially counted for removals. Uh, any energy and industry emissions, so from processing, packaging, transportation downstream are energy and industry emissions. Um, and you cannot count your uh, carbon removals sequestered through forests 
as a net against your energy and industry. So, yes. How'd that decision get made that way? How'd it get made? Like why, why say, mm. even if you're emitting fossil fuels on the farm, you can negate it with soil. But once you leave that truck emitting the same, burning the same fuel can't be negated. It probably has to be negated in a more permanent fashion to qualify under this team. Yeah, probably. So is it just an ease of accounting thing? Is there, is there politics? Like what, what leads to this conclusion? Mm, I wasn't in the room for discussions. So I can give you my view is it's much more aligned with the science of decarbonization. So if you're looking at on-farm emissions, you're looking at typically deforestation, application of fertilizer. Um, and if you ring, ring sense that, and what are the practices that I could do to reduce those emissions and to sequester through removals, that's a much more um, kind of a, a precise way to decarbonize that source of emissions versus if I'm planting trees and I'm trying to use that to counteract my energy combustion, um, planting trees is not going to reduce my emissions. It's about the reductions and the decarbonization. Um, it makes more onus on rolling out renewable energy to reduce my um, fossil fuel emissions. So it's really about uh, targeting action because we have so many affordable climate solutions that are already either cheaper or cost competitive or very slightly higher. Um, then how do we start to create the, the safeguards or the rails around guardrails around action that uh, will reduce and deploy those technologies where those sources are happening? That's my view. I like to think it's informed by science. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that it is. It's just interesting to, <laughs> to think that through and not all of these decisions because the granularity of information here and that quality has a cost. And maybe it could turn out that measuring the exact source of all those emissions, even on a farm, costs way more than just making a conservative assumption and dealing with it some other way. And I think sometimes carbon removal especially has a really strong pedantic quality, this fighting words maybe, that like the, the desire to be extremely precise, which is noble, often leads people to... There's fights over permanence right now about whether a thousand years or 10,000 years even count. Honestly, who cares? I, I really, I'm saying it here that that fight is foolish. And I think we, our time would be better spent saying once you're, once you're in four digits, maybe even high three digits, like if we don't have climate change figured out by the three thousands, I think we got bigger problems and we, I don't think we need to be that forward looking, frankly, but it comes from a good place. But every additional amount of precision or longevity here, it adds a lot to the the price tag in many of these cases of measurement and ongoing verification of this over time. Like sometimes good enough is can be good enough. So I hope you don't feel like I'm I'm picking on you on that. I I think it's an interesting question, and I just want to zero in on maybe I'm committing the thing that I'm oftentimes being snide about or a, a little bit complaining about. Plaintive on myself. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's really about not letting not, like the absence of data or preventing action. I mean, we need to get acting. And I think with those time horizons, you know, I was reading the other day that the ocean conveyor belt's gonna close, shut down much sooner than we thought. Granted, still a hundred years, but like what is a thousand years, 10,000 years when you hear about some of these tipping points that are on the horizon. Um, and so, uh, for, so that's personally why I'm really interested in the data science approaches. It's really using better estimates to get to the big picture faster and then figuring out where and why do I need to collect more data. Um, and so the goal with doing a first um, corporate inventory is just getting the numbers and getting the high level sources and then figuring out what's material and taking it from there. So it's very iterative. Um, we can do a lot more, like I hope we see more open data, data sharing around this because so much primary data is collected, but it's just not available to inform better proxies, especially when you dig into kind of global emissions factors databases and everything. So we need to do, we need to use much more data that we have. Um, for a lot of these kind of carbon removals requirements, that's where I think the carbon market space has really pioneered satellite monitoring and kind of how, you know, quick ways to get, um, to get accountability around and so the level of data needed for for example reporting very very high level very granular but once you start looking at 
contractual obligations between suppliers, then if I'm giving you preferential terms as my supplier, or um, I'm counting on you to set your own target and meet progress against that target, then we're talking about a little bit more granular data needed, right? So it's really um, important to think about what is the purpose of going that extra mile to get more specific data. Ultimately, emissions come from five sources. Global companies with big value chains probably reflect a lot of those global sources and already know off the bat what their main emissions drivers will be and therefore what the decarbonization levers will be. So it's really about once I start looking at my individual suppliers and bringing that into context, that's where I need more um, supplier specific um, emissions data uh, to drive that forward. Yeah, surely a big, big purchaser here has a lot of influence over their suppliers, especially once they're at sufficient scale. I have no, as a consumer, I don't know who those people are. I have only the smallest of sort of in aggregate we matter, but I'm not rallying against a, a supplier whose name I am unlikely to know. So yeah, I think that is a very powerful leverage point. I think it's really interesting how much we're talking about influence or or peer pressure or these different, you know, um, pressure points to apply. I'd love to talk just a little bit about the COP coming up, especially since you've been, Ross, you haven't gone. Have you gone? I haven't gone. So I think Leah's the only one in this room who's gone. And I've never been, no. I mean, this is a very controversial COP coming up. Um, and what are your kind of hopes and dreams? And as you go and witness this live, what are you really hoping to see? Or more importantly, maybe what are you hoping not to see? <laughs> hoping to see, hoping not to see. Uh, hoping to see will be the. This is the year for the global stock take. So every five years under the Paris Agreement, we are going to assess how well we're doing with progress against the Paris Agreement goals, and it's an opportunity to essentially course correct. Um. So I'm hoping to see, um, the, the kind of forward-looking course correcting language coming from COP about. We know that ambition is not enough. We know all of these things. Um, so what are we going to do about it? And that will be striking a balance around um, kind of that inclusive global. A lot of the things we've talked about a little bit, um, but really also looking at the uh, the costs of climate change. So the loss and damage, the adaptation costs, and um, as well as some of the 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 text we've agreed in the past, like phasing out fossil fuel subsidies, which, you know, since uh, COVID and energy security gone the other way. So course correcting language from the global stock take. Last year, we agreed on setting up a loss and damage fund. This year, we're, we should be agreeing on how that fund is going to operate and some more detail around capitalizing and getting um, some of those resources to the most uh, hit and vulnerable countries in the world. Um, there is obviously a big focus on energy, this COP. Um, for me, I think while we do need some element of carbon capture and storage, when you look at the cost per ton, the IPCC report says, you know, you need over to value, value carbon over $100 per ton versus renewable energy, much cheaper. Even uh, on-farm agricultural practices, I think $20 a ton and you'll have unlock major decarbonization um, in that sector. So I think putting carbon capture and storage where it belongs as one uh, lever, but making sure that we're focusing on um, the things that are cheap, affordable and scalable today, um, and that those have the prominence in our energy transition and in our kind of global um, decarbonization plan. So that would be my, what I don't want to see. Um, and I think we're all, yeah, we're paying attention. And the cops are, um, really important for language and signaling, but ultimately rubber is already hitting the road in, in governments and the legislation they're passing through. So I almost wouldn't also over anchor on um, what comes out and, uh, you know, to, having been in this space a long time, there's gonna be highs and lows, but we all see the writing on the wall. We agree we need to change and we're, we're all working towards that. That's very encouraging to hear. And I think perhaps you're right that those of us in the climate space that aren't attending COP oftentimes put a lot of, of pressure in watching COP and thinking, what are they going to decide? What are these targets going to be? Um, but it's encouraging to hear you're, you're saying rubber is hitting the road. How much do you think that's true on relevant timescales? 
relevant to limit warming to 1.5? Relative to limiting warming to one, well, let's go for two, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still on the 1.5. <laughs> Haven't let it go. Uh, I just think we have to try we have to keep the 1.5 and we have to try our best to do it because every it's not even 1.5 to 2 it's like 1.6 is better than 1.7 which is better than 1.8 um and we have a essentially a political agreement for 1.5 that um we hold ourselves to and we hold the world to and um if that you know once we know for sure that that's passed and there should be safeguards that happen and then you have to start counting the the losses of it um so um, action on the, sometimes I, like if I zoom into one thing, I can feel really excited and hopeful. And if I zoom into another, I'm really like, wow, we're just lethargic and moving so slow. Um, so I think you kind of have to balance and, and make sure you see, you hold the vision, hold the vision of 1.5, have the, the problem you're working on, making sure that you're doing it in the most kind of credible, credible and, um, and kind of transformative way that that you can um, for that transparency and accountability piece. Um, and so some of the things that give me hope really is the, the legislation that's coming up, like this carbon border tax is going to have global repercussions because if I'm a company shipping to the EU and then they start to give re tax revenue to the EU, Thailand is now incentivized to put in a carbon tax. So we'll start to see some of these kind of um, policies going, uh, spreading further throughout the world, um, already the disclosures and the pieces. So that's definitely a source of hope. Level of awareness is incredible. Uh, just everyone talking about it, thinking about climate action and figuring out how it affects them, uh, whether that's out front in the media or behind closed doors in strategic boardrooms. There is I think the things that are challenging, yes, is even in the legislation piece, it's like uh, 2025, 2026, this kicks in. And I'm like, well, we're supposed to have peaked global emissions by then and already be coming down. Um, the fact that, you know, in 2030, we're going to almost double up, uh, grow by, I think, 40 to 50 percent, the world economy is, is planned. And in that time, we're supposed to have emissions. So some of those uh, challenges further out. But I always I draw a lot of inspiration from this quote that Bill Gates says, which is, we think we kind of overestimate what we can do in a year or two, but we underestimate the change that will happen in five to 10 years. So I think with all of us putting attention on what is the next, how can we maximize whatever we're doing in the next year or two, you can see the way that the systems will change and um, cost benefit will start to change. And once we uh, start to see those decisions playing out if the company feels the pain of losing a contract because they weren't competitive on carbon um, and we start to see that more visibly then that's going to inform decisions of you know trillions of dollars billions to hopefully trillions of dollars of um, deployment of capital so it's it's really just a question of how soon are we going to feel the pain of of not doing this um, but the, the elements are there and we just need to keep uh, putting our effort where we know we'll pay out. I'm interested in the trans-border tax approach as well. I think it has elements of a market-based policy, which are really interesting. It doesn't uh, tell you exactly how to decarbonize whatever it is you're, that you're selling. It just tells you to figure out a way to broadly get there, or it tells countries to do that internally before you ship uh, things around the world. I think that's that can be a really powerful thing. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how that goes too. I mean, the Brussels effect is pretty powerful too. We've seen that with GDPR. So um, we'll we'll see. It probably will have an outsized impact and it will not likely remain just in Europe. Actually, I don't know. Do you think that's true? Well, UK, I mean, UK, you know, bordering Europe, but they've already said that they're going to do the carbon border tax. Okay. There may, wow. yeah, UK's, uh, yeah, UK's going to do it. Um, we in Southeast Asia, Singapore is the only country that has a carbon tax in place. A couple other governments are planning to, but because there's a, this equivalency measure in the EU carbon tax, if you've paid your tax at the country of origin, you have to pay less tax when it's imported to the EU for the six commodities, right? That are um, that are that it applies to. So in Singapore, for example, we have five dollars per ton of carbon tax. 
it's going up to $25 next year, and then it will continue to increase to, so that's a 5x increase next year. Yeah, um, wow. It goes up. It, it really applies to kind of the energy. So it's a limited number of, of uh, companies that it have to pay that tax. And as the rules are, you can offset maybe 5% of what you owe for, for carbon credits offsetting. So there's a little bit of room for that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it will definitely have transboundary impacts, whether we can trace and say it's because of the EU, like let's see but for sure i mean the the idea conceptually of just putting a price on carbon and letting the markets figure out what is the optimal way forward is very appealing unfortunately it's politically challenging um but i think more and more companies are already doing shadow pricing of carbon just to future proof their business models and um but it doesn't really get converted. It's not like the company's actually paying that and feeling um, the consequence of, of, of that decision. So it's a, right now it's a bit of a theoretical planning tool, um, but putting a price on carbon would solve, I mean, that that's one of those things, right? That if we can get at least maybe G20, there's some discussions around G20 agreeing to apply a price floor. Um, but yes, absolutely. I think it's going to have global repercussions. Also the disclosures of, from global companies as well. And um, yeah, scope three. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad you brought it back there. I want to talk a little bit more about insetting and scope three before we start heading to the conclusion. Um I think there's been, I think it's fair to say that there's been more skepticism about offsets and companies, especially bigger ones, are concerned about the Delta lawsuit and other um, concerns about carbon neutrality and what exactly it means to take care of one's emissions and not wanting to get called for misrepresenting oneself in any sort of legal sense. So it makes sense that insetting um, and just decarbonizing would increase in relative importance. Also, you should probably start there anyways before going right to offsetting in general. Um, Do you agree with that? Do you think companies are going to be looking more inside their own value chain rather than just going to one of the big offset providers and calling it done? Absolutely. And and I also think a lot of these techniques around traceability, well, traceability, maybe a little less so, but monitoring, uncertainty, reversals, accounting, this is an opportunity for carbon, for actors in the carbon markets to get more involved in the corporate space, in the corporate accounting. So there's huge opportunity and actually having some conversations with satellite providers and others that have built up their capacity and business model for the carbon markets are very keen to um, work with companies that are looking for um, trying like account the MRV piece within their value chain. So it might be more of a pivot than a and kind of a, a repositioning than a, a complete change. The insetting piece um, is interesting because it the way it looks like it will play out in the corporate value chain is more of like this uh, kind of contractual agreement uh, with. Um, I, you know, quantify and uh, enter into agreement with this other player in my value chain or an external player that's going to do a project in my value chain um, and have that uh, kind of insetting piece. But then ultimately you account for it in an inventory approach. Um, So there's a lot of, I mean, if ultimately we're all working towards just bringing down the emissions and carbon markets have been a a way of capitalizing and um, turning that into a cash flow, there are many different ways that use a lot of the uh, techniques that have been developed in carbon markets. So um, it will, there's definitely a lot changing in the whole space. Um, and the we've got that mitigation hierarchy, you know, you start with what you can avoid, you look at what you can reduce and substitute, and then ultimately kind of that compensation is, is, uh, is in its place. And we're seeing now the standards starting to back up this conceptual hierarchy in how a company um, should have a credible decarbonization plan. The other big EU, I mean, a lot of this is like EU's kind of the, you know, wind for yeah. where we're seeing the movements happening. EU is also looking at by, you know, a couple of years away, um, having a ban in carbon neutral claims for its products um, based on offsetting. So if we look at where the direction is heading, then offsetting is a kind of a CSR piece. It's like, it's nice to do corporate social responsibility. Like if I think about our own Terrascope net zero journey, right? We've measured our emissions. We've figured out where we need to act in order to decarbonize our own business. 
Um, we will look at doing offsets as a contribution to the social good, but we will count our emissions and count our removals um, without the offset piece. So until we get to a certain level where we've decarbonized, we've done everything we can, and then we offset. And that's kind of in line with the science-based target. So it, yeah, there's like short-term need to kind of get money going to those decarbonization places, but how do we do that while may really focusing on um, those di difficult, more um, kind of potentially transformational actions on reducing emissions? How does that sit with you, Ross? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's I'd not... like to hear your perspective. Working no, I, I think, what do I you don't... see? I mean, it's it's not as good of radio when there isn't as strong of a, hmm, well, I see it a little bit differently and this is how I feel. I'm like, yeah, I think people probably should go that way. It's much harder. Turns out taking a taking a stock of your of your life and your moral failures, it's easier to just give to charity than to address the failures. <laughs> so I can't, it's not surprising that companies would like a simpler solution. Turns out, though, that, you know, the call is coming from inside the house. As therapists like to say, you you need to you need to deal with that yourself. So I I think it's good. I think um, regulation done in the right way can be really powerful. And we started this conversation about standardization and how important and powerful that can be. And I'm also I'm frustrated with the proliferation of so many standards. I can't even keep track of all of them and which ones I'm supposed to care about and which one is ascending, which one is declining which ones I actually need to be tracking, which ones are going to fade into irrelevance in a year. Um, and there's a desire to have like some strong centralized authority just come out and say, this is the way it should be. I think people forget that there's serious risk to that too. We had the UN body recently um, almost discredited all engineered carbon removal as sort of a, a legitimate pathway to, to net zero. And that scared our industry very strongly and saying like, wow, this might be entirely out of our hands in some centralized body that we have very little access to. So maybe the decentralization here can be protective in a way and not nearly so chaotic. So uh, anyways, we're an unhappy race of, of conscious entities, humans, um, by which I mean that we're just unsatisfied and it's hard to please us. But no, I that's a rambly way of saying I broadly agree with you. I hope I hope you're right. I hope we're able to start making progress towards this. It scares me when I see headlines about Antarctica, um, about heat waves in Brazil. I see things happening that are truly spooky. We don't have a lot of time to keep talking about exactly how to do this and how to do that. It's almost like, can we can we just get a move on? And the good news is though, you are right though. Some places you look, it's amazing. I'm really encouraged. Some places you look, you're terrified. I try to get a good balance of both. Um, Maybe can you give us like one what's like a dark horse thing that the average person doesn't know about that you think is really going to swoop in here and have a big impact two, three, five years from now? And because you, you, you clearly know so much about this and, and you're looking ahead. Um, well, dark horse in terms of unfortunately, the way we tend to operate is crisis mode, right? So, um, we saw progress after 30 years trying to get a loss and damage fund. It took $10 billion of losses in Pakistan, which was chairing the group of 130 developing countries. I mean, you can never attribute anything to one thing, but having Pakistan chairing a group of developing countries in the year that we went for the loss and damage funds, um, that was really one of the key factors that that happened. So I we're all working towards averting crises and cost to human lives and to assets. At the rate we're going, we know it's just a matter of time to the next one. And for me, those are going to be the dark horses. If we don't get our act together and start to avoid um, some of these things that we know the science is telling us is out there, um, then that's going to trigger short-term focus and push a lot of these uh, things through. Like maybe that is what is required to get a carbon uh, tax agreed among a group of countries that are major industrialized kind of or emitters. Um, and then that will have a reactionary, but very short-term and, and transformational impact. So yeah, but in the meantime, we do the best to avoid these disasters and crises. I think that's the nature of environment is you're always preventing um, things from exceeding uh, the, like we try to prevent the spills and we try to do this, uh, but 
inevitably some of these things uh, make their way through and then you have to use that focus and window of opportunity to get a major um and get a major win and change things and have that uh, carry forward so that's my dark horse perspective <laughs> dark for the dark horse perspective yeah something it was like it was like a sea biscuit kind of thing you know the horse is in the back that comes out and surprises everyone and it's good that sounds like a scary black swan but also with the silver lining there's too many mixed metaphors here siobhan save us we got to get out of here this is <laughs> save me save me from myself we're at this point. Well, Leah, I'm really excited that you're going to this, what many are considering disaster of a cop. I'm glad you're working um, in Terrascope and helping people decarbonize. Tell the people where they can follow you and or what are some projects you'd like to shout out about Terrascope or how could people work with you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So on LinkedIn, on the website, we I also run a, every other month a climate cafe which is i get to talk to really interesting people actually i did one yesterday with ben caldecott who does uh the transition planning work in the uk so that's a great forum to kind of keep up to date with some of the things we're doing so definitely reach out um linkedin is a great spot uh terrascope and if anyone is happens to be in singapore um or be based here then you know we're always trying to avoid flight emissions but it's always good to connect with uh climate folks in this part of the world yeah, well, I'm so glad we got to connect with you today. I hope you and I get to connect in person again soon. Ross, believe it or not, Leah and I graduated from the same from the same year. And look at all the cool things she's doing. <laughs> oh, don't, say, don't, don't say that about yourself. I'm, I think what you're doing is working on this pod. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Sorry, Leah. You have a much more impressive spot. No, I'm just kidding. I'm about to edit this. This is, I don't want to insult you publicly, Siobhan. Don't put me in a position to. Um, we're just really glad to have you on. Um, I hope we can have you again in the future when we, when we have some of these dark horse events and we see some real action and, and give you, have you give us the one-on-one, -on -one, the one-on-one about what's happening. So thank you so much. Keep up the good work and come again. Thanks. Thanks so much for um, having me and really enjoy the speakers that you've had on. And this is super important. The just like getting the word out and getting the, the education. So awesome. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.